This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. Oath slash sanctions, blessing and cursing. Chapter 4, Whose Sanctions Will Prevail? Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do. But they did, they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Jeremiah 11, 6-11. There is no doubt that the prophet Jeremiah functioned as a covenantal agent between God and the innocent people of Judah. The king and his court had become corrupt. Jeremiah proclaimed the terms of the covenant before kings. He was the prosecutor of God's covenant lawsuit, but the king chose not to listen. He cut the law of the covenant into pieces and threw the pieces into the fire. Thus announced Jeremiah, the nation would fall to the Babylonians. How would this protect the innocent? Because there would be greater justice under pagan King Nebuchadnezzar than under Jehoiakim. As it turned out, Nebuchadnezzar was converted to true faith in the final years of his life, and God allowed him to write his testimony as a chapter in the Bible, the only formerly pagan writer ever to have this honor, Daniel 4. Prophetic Confrontation and Political Interposition While the story is lengthy, it is important for today's Christian to recall the specifics of the historic confrontation between Jeremiah and Baruch, his scribe on the one hand, and the king of Judah on the other. It is a grim reminder of the arrogance of rulers in the face of a looming national crisis. I include it in full detail because Christian critics of public protests by Christians insist that the protesters show their arguments are based on the Bible. Unfortunately, Christians frequently prefer not to read the Bible, but instead rely on someone's summary of the Bible. Reading the Bible text takes too much time, they think. They prefer to skip over the biblical text and get to the heart of the matter, as if the biblical text were not the heart of the matter. The incident began with a fast, a fast which the people themselves called. The perceived, they perceived that a national crisis was imminent. In this, retros, in this respect, the spiritual decline of the people had not yet reached rock bottom. They still recognized, however dimly, that there is a cause and effect relationship in history between covenantal rebellion and national catastrophe. The Babylonians were almost literally at the gates of the city, and the people wanted to do something to avoid the nation's looming defeat. They allowed Baruch, 
Jeremiah's scribe, to read the words that God had declared to Jeremiah. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people that came from the cities of Judah under Jerusalem. Then read Baruch in the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of uh, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the higher court at the entry of the new gate, at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the ears of all the people. Jeremiah 36, 9 through 10. An agent of the lower magistrate was in the crowd, and he then took the message to his associates. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord, then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and lo, all the princes sat there, even Elishama the scribe, and Deliah the son of Shemaiah, and Elnathan son of Akbar, and Gamariah, son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, unto Baruch, saying, Take in thine hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the roll in his hand and came unto them. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. Jeremiah 36, 11 through 16. The lower magistrates decided at that point to listen to the words of the prophet. The people had initiated the national fast, and now the rulers felt led by the example set by the people. When they heard the message, they decided that the prophet's warning should be taken seriously. Then they made a fundamental decision. They decided to serve as judicial intermediaries between Baruch and the king. They took a legal stand interposition. Now it came to pass when they heard all the words that they were afraid, both one and another, and said unto Baruch, we will surely tell the king all of these words. And they asked Baruch saying, tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them. He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the princes unto Baruch, Go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. And they went into the king and the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes who stood beside the king. Chapter 36, 14 through 21. The king by now had heard that the people had called a fast and had listened to Baruch. Now he was being confronted by his subordinate officials. They were telling him that they had listened and that he should too. Thus the covenantal message had moved to the pinnacle of civil government. What would the king do now? How would he respond? A representative act of national rebellion. The king had to respond covenantally. He could act as a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. He could cut the covenant through an act of covenant renewal. Renewal. This would require him to make public repentance as a representative of the nation. He understood this and decided to cut the covenant literally rather than ethically. Now the king sat in the winter house 
in the ninth month. And there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with his, the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Jeremiah 36, 22-23. At this point, the lower magistrate could have intervened and demanded that the king renew the covenant through representative repentance. This would have been a revolution. It would have been based on the doctrine of interposition. Lower magistrates overturning a superior's decision to defy God in his capacity as a public official. But the lower magistrates decided to stand with the king. His courage gave them courage. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments. Neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Alnathan and Deliah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jeremiel, son of Hamalek, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shalemiah, the son of Abdeel, to take Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Jeremiah 36, 24, 26. Jeremiah and Baruch could have stayed hidden. After all, they had confronted people, magistrates, and king without success. They could in good conscience wait for the Lord to bring his sanctions, but Jeremiah understood the biblical principle of the double witness. Jeremiah decided to bring God's covenant lawsuit against the king a second time. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judea all the evil that I pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. Jeremiah 36, 27 through 31. But they hearkened not. And in hearkening not, they sealed their doom. Babylon invaded and Judah fell. The people, the magistrates, the king, and even Jeremiah went into exile in Egypt. Speaking prophetically today, it is frequently said that Christians who are upset by the sight of other Christians who carry picket signs or in other ways publicly protesting against public evil. Why do you think, who do you think you are? You're not prophets. You have no right to act like prophets. This act, if this acts, if, if, <laughs> This accusation is true if by prophet we mean people who are uniquely called by God to confront kings. There are no more prophets anymore. For that matter, there are no more kings. But Christians can speak prophetically analogous to the way that prophets spoke. Did Jeremiah try to organize a public protest? No. He did not have to. He was content to see Judah fall to the Babylonians. It was his task to warn the rulers of God's impending wrath, but... He would not organize politically to force them out of office. That would not have been possible. Jeremiah organized no protests because he knew that God had given over the nation to its enemies. God was fed up. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. 
Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the king that sits upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, with drunkenness, and I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but destroy them, Jeremiah 13, 20, 12, 14. In fact, it is because we are not prophetically endowed regarding the specific future that we Christians must speak out. We must preach God's word faithfully. We are required by God to speak prophetically, bringing to the attention of all men the judicial terms of God's covenant, personal and corporate, warning them of the covenant promised negative sanctions, sanctions that are applied in history by God to his enemies, personally and corporately. There are those who say that God no longer applies his sanctions in history. These are false prophets. In Jeremiah's day, God promised to deal with them harshly. He also promised to deal harshly with those who listen to them and believe them. Men should take heed. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine. But I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lie in my name. In my name. I say them not. I sent them not. Neither have I commanded them. Neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and a thing not, and the deceit of the heart. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets, that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall these prophets be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. Jeremiah 14, 13 through 16. Stages of avoiding God's negative physical sanctions. Once sin is indulged in, there'll be negative sanctions imposed by God on the sinner or a substitute. Negative sanctions are inevitable. The only way to escape them is for someone to intervene and bear them in place of the sinner. What if the sinner persists in his sin? What if he rejects the free offer of personal interposition that Jesus Christ, the sin bearer, has made? Then God threatens to escalate the level of sanctions. Those under the authority of wicked rulers are inevitably involved in their corporate sins. This is because all authority is hierarchical. The wicked rulers represent the whole society, even including good men. This is analogous to a military chain of command. As surely as competent military troops are defeated, if the commander makes bad decisions, so can righteous people be placed under the general sanctions God brings against unrighteous rulers. This is why churches are required by God to call wickedness to account, which includes warning all men, including rulers, of God's covenantal sanctions. The only way for righteous men to avoid these sanctions is for them to become true watchmen, on the tower. The churches of a nation must confront the specific evil that threatens to bring down God's wrath if the sin is not stopped. They must preach against the specific sin, organize people to fight against it, and teach them how to petition governments and organize politically. If political mobilization is impossible, as in communist nations, or fails to produce results, as it has in the case of the United States since Roe v. Wade was handed down in 1973, then the churches must advance to the next stage. 
This involves calling down God's wrath on the offending civil governors or judges. The best models here are the so-called imprecatory psalms. They're not prayed in public very often in modern churches, but they, they are forgotten or worse, they have become an embarrassment. But their use as part, as part of formal worship is clearly called for, or else God would not have put them in the psalms which are intended to be sung in public. A good example of an imprecatory psalm is Psalm 83. Keep not thou silent, O Lord, hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God, for lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they hate thee, and, and they that hate thee have lifted up thy up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. Psalm 83, 1 through 3. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as unto Sesera, as to Jabin, at the brook of Kishon, which has perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, like all the princes of Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth wood, as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. So persecute them in thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm, Fill their face with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. Psalm 83, 9 through 18. Churches that are too embarrassed to pray such prayers against those who murder judicially innocent unborn infants do not understand the looming problem facing modern society. The sanctions are coming. If AIDS is any indication, as I believe that it is, the sanctions are already here. If praying an imprecatory psalm is a worse offense in the eyes of a Christian than the crime of abortion, then that Christian is fleeing from God one way or another. The task of being an intercessor in prayer is not denied by Christians. A man intercedes at the throne of God in the name of others. This is the biblical meaning of the word saint. It means someone who has lawful access to God's sanctuary. He is set apart because he is morally sanctified by God's imputation of Christ's righteousness to him. But a saint brings sanctions. He calls for God to impose physical sanctions on his enemies. And God may then call him to move from being an intercessor to an interposer. He calls him to interpose positive sanctions, the preservation of a judicially innocent life, to bring upon himself the negative sanction of the state. The next stage of protest is civil disobedience. Christians jam the doorways of the abortion mills while the timing of each stage of escalation, of escalating protest, prophetic protest is difficult to judge. There's no doubt that doing nothing is in fact doing something. It is allowing society to come under the sanctions of God in history. It is interesting that the following passage is used by trainers in evangelism, soul winning, in the personal salvation sense, but not in its corporate covenantal transgression and judgment sense, which is what the passage deals with. Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man in their, in, of their coasts and set him for their watchman, when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warns the people. Then whosoever heareth the word of the trumpet and take not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own hand. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh 
warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman seeth the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people are not warned, be not warned, if the sword come and take away person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee as a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, a wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou didst not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Ezekiel 33, 2-9. See what it says? If the watchman refuses to warn the people of their ethical transgression, then the negative sanctions will be applied to the watchman. This is not figurative language. This is not to be allegorized away. This is God speaking and his word is true. This is the language of the sword. The text shows us that it is not the people, the prophet who wields the sword. The prophet wields the covenant. God does not call the prophet or watchman to execute physical judgment on sinners. He calls them to warn sinners of impending physical judgment. God uses other agents than prophets to wield his sword or rod of wrath, but he does bring it eventually. The sword remains silent in our day then we can only expect the sword, the famine, and the plague. Most Christians deny this fact, either openly or in their hearts. And if so, they have become false prophets, if only to themselves. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but you, I will give you assured peace in this place. Jeremiah fourteen thirteen. There is one final stage of protest, armed revolution. This is a lawfully la- this is lawfully launched only by lower magistrates. This is the Protestant doctrine called the doctrine of interposition. John Calvin discussed it in chapter 20 of book 4 of his Institutes of Christian Religion. It was also taught by the anonymous Junius Brutus in the Vindicae Contra Tyrannus, which was published in 1581, also known as the Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. This book was translated into English in 1689, the year following the Glorious Revolution of Parliament against King James II. Many of the arguments for lawful revolution found in John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, 1690, were taken from the Vindicae. The word was known to leaders of the American Revolution. The book was known to leaders of the American Revolution nine decades later. If the doctrine of interposition is false, then the American Revolution had no grounding in the Bible, no moral or legitimate justification in the eyes of of God. Thus, those Christians who say confidently that all revolutionary violence is wrong have become the spiritual heirs of the Tories, not just those who oppose the American Revolution, but those who oppose the Revolution of 1689. While such views have existed in history, they were opposed by the Whig tradition and lawful re- re- revolution against tyranny. The Christian roots of this doctrine and so proposed that the great seal of the United States be a picture of Israelites crossing the Red Sea with this motto. Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Ben Franklin, free thinker though he was, recognized the Christian roots of this doctrine and so proposed that the great seal of the United States be a picture of Israelites crossing the Red Sea with the motto, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. 
Now, if lower magistrates refuse to take up arms against a corrupt central government, or if they are defeated in the attempt, then God will use outside agents to bring judgment. The point is that the doctrine of interposition is not strictly political or military. It is covenantal. God will raise up those who will act as his agents in bringing injustice to a halt. Someone will intervene in the name of the victimized innocents. Warning at each stage, the sanctions get worse in defense of single-issue politics. Both God and Satan run their kingdoms in terms of the five-point covenant model. The authorized agents of both supernatural beings threaten to impose sanctions. Thus, when the watchman prophet begins to challenge the existing social evils of the day, he can expect retaliation. This happened to Jeremiah. The lower civil magistrates intervened themselves into the affairs of the king. They persuaded him to allow them to put Jeremiah in a dungeon. We learn this. We learn from this. There is evil intervention in life. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah into the court of the prison, that they should give him a daily a piece of bread out of the baker's street until all the bread in the city were spent. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Then Shephatiah the son of Matan, and Gedaliah the son of Pashur, and Juel the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken unto all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth forth to the Chaldeans shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey, and shall live. Thus saith the Lord, This day shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it, this city. Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For he thus weaketh the hands of the men of war that remain in this city and the hands of all the people and speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand. For the king is not he that can do anything against you. Then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the son of Hamalech that was in the court of the prison. And they set, let down Jeremiah with cords, and in, the, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk into the mire. Jeremiah 37, 21 through 38, 6. This act of evil-minded intervention against the protesting prophet was countered by a righteous man who then intervened to help the prophet. The king was double-minded and confused, and in such situations, there will be a war for the mind and support of the king. Today, the national civil government of the United States is equally double-minded and confused, which makes intervention a way of life for protesters, both good and evil. This is why there's been a, a, been a growth of single-issue single issue politics and single-issue pressure groups. This is a wholesome political development, one which those on the high moral ground should expect to benefit from. As, as Christian political lobbyist Larry Pratt says, whose direct mail piece is likely to gain the most response, the one that protests the killing of babies or the one that upholds the woman's right to choose, single-issue politics would not have the politically disruptive effects that are criticized by the would-be peacekeepers of the land if the voting public and their political representatives were not double-minded morally. If they were not so unwilling to obey God's law, we need more single-issue protesters like Ebed Melech. Now, Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, 
one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. The king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom thou hast cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king, under the treasury, and took thence old cast clots and old rotten rags, and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast clots and rotten rags under thine armholes, under the cords. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Jeremiah 38, 7-13. Now, Jeremiah was placed under physical sanctions. An intercessor intervened on his behalf and gained his release. Ebed-Melech was a righteous man, for he risked the king's wrath by intervening in this fashion. Queen Esther did the same thing for her people, the Jews, who were about to be placed under the king's deadly sanctions because of Haman's evil interposition against them. Counterattack. Physical sanctions. There should be little doubt in the minds of those who take up the covenant task of challenging rulers in God's name that the civil rulers will strike back, perhaps literally, if civil rulers will tolerate and even authorize, i.e. sanction, the prophet seeking murder of the innocent, then they will surely tolerate the persecution of those who interpose themselves in between the murders and their judicially innocent victims. The rulers recognize clearly that these watchmen are calling rulers to judicial account before God and men when they interpose themselves between the murderous sanctions of the abortionists and their intended victims. The more public and physical the interposition, the more resentful and revengeful the morally corrupt and judicially blinded rulers will be. They will escalate their negative sanctions as surely as God will escalate his. The physical interposition of the saints is biblically legitimate because the sanctions of the murderers is illegitimately physical. Because the interposition of the saints is physical, the sanctions applied by the public authorities are likely to be also physical. From the very beginning of the protest, the question is not sanctions versus no sanctions. The question is, who sanctions? When the confrontation escalates, the question is not physical sanctions versus no physical sanctions. The question is, whose physical sanctions? Which physical sanctions? What all Christian protesters must understand before they get involved in acts of physical interposition is this. Without the support of the lower magistrates, they cannot lawfully and covenantally impose negative physical sanctions against the civil authorities. Now, nonviolent physical interposition is a positive physical sanction for the unborn child and therefore a negative physical sanction against attempted murders, but it is not a negative physical sanction against the civil magistrate. There is nothing in principle that says that protesters cannot lawfully and covenantally impose the physical sanction of bodily interposition in between criminals and victims. If the interposition predicts that making a citizen's arrest of the murders will not be sustained in court, then he may choose to test the law in other ways. The way he does this biblically is to become the covenant strike bearer. He interposes himself physically in between the criminal and the intended victim and thereby risks taking the physical punishment that the murderer's agents, the police, may impose on all protesters. 
Jesus Christ provides us with the biblical model of passive stripe-bearing. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he hid as it were not our, and, he, and, he, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him. Yet we, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and we and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her, her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 3-12. The Christian cannot bear another man's sin, but he can serve as Jesus Christ did, as an interposer. He can pay part of the historical price owed by the sinner. It, by taking the beating administered by an officer of corrupt rulers, he can thereby turn public opinion and save the, innocent, the lives of the innocent. He can delay or eliminate the judgment of God on the whole society. Being an interposer in the face of physical danger is another aspect of being an intercessor. As a stripe bearer, the interposer places himself as God's agent of positive sanctions. God's positive sanctions, blessings, will come to the whole society if the voters see that their civil representatives are doing and then replace them. Should Christians resist public evil? Chapter 2 begins with seemingly contradictory biblical passages regarding obedience to civil magistrates. If we understand the covenant, we understand how these two principles fit together, the doctrine of hierarchical authority. The state is under God. The Christian who protests is biblically who protests a biblically evil law is being faithful to God. He is calling the rulers to repentance by a public stand against a bad law. The Christian must obey the terms of God's covenant. A similar and even parallel seeming, uh, parallel seeming d dilemma is found in these two passages. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Mas Matthew 5.39 Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4.7 The Christian is not called to strike the king's agent on his cheek. Rather, he is to, set, to accept the blows on his own cheek. The context of this passage is bondage. Israel was under the political rule of the Roman Empire. Jesus was instructing his followers not to become violent political revolutionaries. Submit to stronger political military power for the time being, he said. But this does not mean that they should not oppose civil rulers who are evil. 
It meant that the resistance program should be nonviolent. He was calling his followers to nonviolent protests to take the blows of the unrighteous rulers. James was saying the same thing. Christians are to submit to God, but resist the temptations of the devil. The devil cannot tolerate moral resistance. He will eventually flee from those who display the moral will to resist. This does not deny Christ Jesus' principle of turning the other cheek. Nonviolent resistance is a way to resist the devil, but a peaceful form. It is an appropriate form of resistance for those who are under the judicial bondage of morally corrupt rulers. The point that Jesus was making is that the protester must be willing to endure the physical sanctioned sanctions imposed by the enemy. This is always the risk of becoming a nonviolent protester of public unrighteousness. The protest is covenantally legitimate, but only if the protesters bear the physical sanctions of the police and the economic sanctions imposed by the courts. In order to reverse the prior ruling of a higher court, protesters should demand a jury trial. Every protester should demand this. If they cannot afford to do this financially, then other that other red resistors should dig into their wallets and finance these people's legal defense. The goal is to get at least one test case that reverses the existing legal precedent. If every protester simply forfeits bond and refuses to be tried, they, don't get, they do not get a test case. Conclusion. The prophet's role is to bring a covenant lawsuit against society. He brings it especially to the civil magistrate. They act representatively in the name of the people. The survival of the nation is at stake. The ruler can make or break the nation depending on his response to the prophet. The people are given an opportunity to hear the terms of the lawsuit. So are the lesser magistrates. They are sovereign, not the king. They can interpose themselves judicially and force the king to renew the covenant with God. On a few occasions in Israel's history, they did. When King Saul issued his foolish rule that no one body could eat during the battle of the Philistines, and Jonathan, just before his victory, ate honey, the king was ready to execute him. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die. Jonathan and the people said unto Saul, Thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he died not. 1 Samuel 14, 43-45. But such occurrences were rare in Israel's history. Nothing like this took place in Jeremiah's day, and so Judah fell. The goal of the prophet is to bring God's covenant lawsuit against the nation. He is to bring it publicly. He must capture the attention of the whole nation and its civil and ecclesiastical leaders. This means that the confrontation must be public. The confrontation is ultimately covenantal, but it must also be verbal and visibly confrontation. It must be be a verbal and visible confrontation. This is why in today's world the media is so vital. It's through the public confrontation between God's prophets and the nation that the issue is made visible. Gandhi knew, Martin Luther King knew, and the radicals of the late 1960s knew the media is the way to the people. It is time for Christians to bring covenant lawsuit. If they do not, or if they do not do it effectively, God will bring his sanctions. And at that point, a Christian does not want to be a watchman on the watchtower who has failed to sound the warning. The warning above all is covenantal. In summary, one, 
Jeremiah was a covenant agent of God. Two, he brought God's covenant lawsuit before Judah. Three, the people initially listened to Jeremiah's message given through Baruch the scribe. Four, the lesser magistrates initially listened. Five, the king cut the scroll into pieces and tossed them into the fire. The lesser magistrate then sided with the king. Jeremiah sent another scroll, a double witness. Christians can lawfully speak prophetically today. Nine, Christians must protest publicly because we do not know whether God has given up the nation to the invaders. Ten, there are always false prophets who deny God's covenant sanctions in history, especially negative sanctions. Eleven, churches should call publicly to account wicked behavior by civil rulers. Twelve, churches should use the imprecatory psalms, psalms of negative judgment. Thirteen, the intercessor is a saint. Fourteen, the saint has access to God's holy sanctuary. Fifteen, the saint is God's counselor. Sixteen, the saint calls down God's sanctions. Seventeen, the next stage of protest is civil disobedience. Eighteen, the watchman who fails to warn men of the impending negative sanctions must bear those sanctions personally. Nineteen, the final stage of protest is armed revolution, corporate interposition. Twenty, this can be organized lawfully only by lower magistrates. 21. Single-issue political action is biblical. 22. When the enemy imposes negative sanctions, the proper response is personal interposition, either legal or physical. 23. Nonviolent interposition does not require the approval of lesser magistrates. 24. Jesus was the ultimate interposer. 25. He bore the sanctions of God administered by unjust men. 26. The interposer may sometimes bear the state's physical sanctions. 27. Christians must resist the evil one. 28. This resistance can be nonviolent. 29. If protesters are unwilling to bear the state's sanctions voluntarily, then they should not escalate the level of protest. And 30. The confrontation is ultimately covenantal, bringing God's covenant lawsuit. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.